0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Evan. My wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church alongside an amazing team of elders and staff. Uh, our church is committed to living out the teachings of Jesus. We're all about the teachings and the life and the spirit of Jesus, uh, and we're doing it together in community. You guys, there's so much detachment right now, and digital connection is masquerading as relationship. And if there's any way we can help you get more connected to relationship and community, please let us know. Even if it means maybe God is actually inspiring you to uh, lead a community. We need leaders right now. There's lots of folks saying, I want connection. I want connection to the church and the vision of the church. And that happens in community, but we need leaders. So maybe this is a season of leadership for you. And we'd love to walk you through what that looks like. Please let us know if you sense the Spirit leading you in that way. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, the world-famous love chapter. We did part one last week, part two this week, 1 Corinthians 13. Remember our definition of love from last week, from Jesus and Paul. Love is a settled purpose to elevate the well-being of someone else, no matter how they respond or what it might cost you right? Our culture has lots of different definitions of love that are contrary. It's like a junk drawer. Love is a feeling sometimes. Other times it's a preference or whatever. And sometimes it's deep feelings of affection or commitment. But love, according to Jesus, is a settled purpose to elevate the well-being of another person, no matter how they respond or what it might cost you. And this is the goal of everything we're doing. This is why you're you're here. This is why we're doing this gathering and the bread and the cup and studying scripture and everything else as a church. It's all to grow in our capacity to love. This is what God wants for your life, and if we're honest, it's what you want. (laughs) It's what we want for our lives. We want it. We long to become people of love. And why is that? A big reason is you and I innately realize that love and justice are just two sides of the same coin. As human beings, we want to stop injustice, right? We, we ache for justice. We want abuse and trauma to be healed and abusers stopped and vulnerable people protected and the poor cared for. We want injustice stopped as humans. But here's a big point from the first half of, 1 Corinthians 13, we saw this last week. In, in, In our most honest moments, we realize we're complicit in injustice because of our unlove, right? In our impatience, we rob people of the time that they need to heal and grow. In our unkindness, we drain people who enter our toxic space. And when we behave like black holes of selfishness and grudges and arrogance, we perpetuate the same injustices that we see out there and want to stop. And this is our hypocrisy, right? I mean, who's with me? <laughs> this is our hypocrisy. We intuitively want justice for people. Meanwhile, our imperfect love perpetuates injustices. Now, we're all complicit in this hypocrisy <laughs> Welcome to the conundrum of being human, right? Like this is being human. And the the Bible has a word for this conundrum, sin. As human beings, this is our hypocrisy. It's this sin where we're misaligned with our own judgment. And it's the water we all swim in. And the invitation from Jesus is to be forgiven and healed of the hypocrisy, the sin. And we do this by confessing that Jesus on the cross willingly bore the weight of our hypocrisy and our manipulation and our mixed motivation. And Jesus came to us while we were sinners. That's when he came in his love. And he entered the black hole of my unlove to reverse its power from the inside out and open a way for me to grow in my capacity to love like he does by the power of the Spirit. You guys, this is Christianity. If you're new to Jesus, new to church, you're just checking this out, welcome. Thanks for coming. You're very brave. That's Christianity. This is why we exist, you guys. We're gathered here as God's people to remind ourselves of how loved we are and and grow in that, to grow in that capacity. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. We looked at the first half last week. Let's read the second half. 1 Corinthians 13, verse eight. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Beautiful text. Um, I heard one pastor say it's like Paul had just the right amount of coffee right before he wrote that. It's incredible, incredible work. Um, But before we unpack this text, last Sunday, I briefly mentioned how this past year exposed how unloving I am. And I just want to expound on that. There's something about experiencing significant loss that exposes a person's, exposes someone's core motivations, right? Um, And we've all experienced loss this year, loss of a sense of control. It was an illusion anyway. We're not in control. (laughs) There's so little we actually ever control but we've lost whatever we thought we had. Or maybe a lost job or lost income or even a lost loved one. And these losses have a way of exposing our core drivers. And for me personally, you guys, our family, the Wickham House, to go through all that kind of we went through, loss of connection with you guys. um, And then my wife, Sandy, losing a baby and then coming close to losing her own life last October. To go through that, it was a wake-up call. Like, what is really precious? And even more than that, what's the foundation of my life that I'm functioning from? We just hit three years as a church, and I've noticed something that's been going on in me for these three years. There's this subtle, persistent pull toward ministry being the center of my life rather than Jesus. Um. I'm constantly being tempted to love what I do for Jesus more than loving Jesus himself. Uh, sacrificing, the, and this is, it shows up by how I sacrifice the wrong things in order to be a better pastor or whatever. I've sacrificed being present to my kids at dinner for one more text to that church member. Sacrificing date night with my wife so I can get the sermon manuscript just right. Even my own integrity, sacrificing my own word Like, hey, family, I'm done with emails for the day. I'm fully present. I'm here. And 30 minutes later, I'm like sneaking away to email. What is that? What is that? This is loving what I do for Jesus more than loving Jesus himself. This is loving God's temporary benefits more than God. And this really played out in my life this year. I came face to face with real tragedy and it's consistently revealed my brokenness. What really matters in life? Not like what am I supposed to say that matters? Like what do I what am I functioning from? I so easily focus on things that don't last. And and this hopefully is a moment for all of us. Careers and influence inherently don't last. Health doesn't last. Even churches don't last. The global church will last, but individual churches change all the time, and so do pastoral offices and roles, you know? Uh, Jesus lasts. His kingdom lasts, and the church will only last as long as we're attached to Jesus. Um, And all of this has become more real than ever in my life this last year, as I've realized that I have slowly drifted from my center, it's not that I don't love Jesus anymore. It's not like that obvious. I still want to love God and people, but looking back, my struggle, even still battling, is wanting to shift from loving God to loving God's temporary benefits. And and then the tricky thing about this, where I don't know if, who's I don't know if any of you are with me on this, but the tricky thing so tricky is that loving God's benefits can feel like loving God. Like we can think that's what we're doing. Like loving preaching or leading in the church or worship or praying out loud, it can look very Christian and holy and spiritual even to yourself. That is until a tragedy threatens those benefits and then you lens click over to anxiety and you get bitey and operate out of insecurity instead of a settled rhythm of prayer. And then I'm short with my wife and not present to my kids when I say I will be. Because what was passing as love for God was really love for God's temporary benefits in my life. And the thing, uh, last thing on this, and then we'll get to the text, but this is important because this is what Paul wants us to know in this text. All God's benefits are good, (laughs) good and true, beautiful things about living on planet earth together. And they're all meant to help us on the way to loving God and people. They're meant to support, not supplement. Like Bible knowledge, spiritual gifts, church, all these things, even the beauty of creation, they're all good gifts meant to lead us toward loving people and not take the place of people or God. And so this is what Paul's getting at right here in verse eight, where he says, quote, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, spiritual languages, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. Okay, you see that? So Paul holds up love defined by Jesus. Remember what it is. It's a settled purpose to act for the well-being of another, no matter what it costs you or how they'll respond. That's love. Um, So Paul holds that up and says, only that lasts. Unlike, and then he lists prophecy. So that's not a word we often talk about maybe, unless you're a certain Pentecost, I don't know, whatever, but prophecy uh, very basically is speaking words from God. It's the gift of being a child of God who gets to speak words from God to other children of God incredible gift. And guess what? It's not going to last. Why not? Because one day we see God face to face and we don't need to speak words from him. And yet this gift of speaking words is so good. And he says the same thing about speaking in tongues and divine knowledge. And you can fill in whatever your spiritual gift is. He's saying these are amazing things that help you love other people. And one day they will cease to exist. Why? Verse nine, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So according to Paul, all of the gifts of the spirit, our current way of experiencing God, at its best is just a partial experience of love. And one day we'll live together in the fullness of God's thick presence. And in that space, who needs gifts? We don't need the gifts that support our love for God because God is fully, without a mediator, he's fully present. Can you imagine that? This is our future, can you imagine this? People, you are from the future and you're moving to the future. Can you imagine what that will look like? I mean, for real, a world where the gifts of the Spirit are literally unnecessary because God himself is intimately present. Let your imagination run wild. Paul wants your imagination to fill in all the colors of what that'll feel, look, experience. What kind of intimacy is that? What kind of world is that? How many of you have been used by God to like speak encouragement into someone else's life and you just knew that was God animating you? Anybody experience that? Yeah. How amazing is that to operate in your gift and know that it's the Spirit flowing through you to build up someone. Maybe it's in your community that that happens or in a prayer night or we're gonna be in a month of crying out in April next month, every Tuesday night right here and we're gonna be seeking the gifts of the Spirit and we're gonna be doing that. How incredible is it to do that, to gather and sing and invite the Spirit to flow through who we are. And listen, that mode is going to end. (laughs) It's all going to be over. History. In fact, Paul uses the word abolished in this passage. It's the same word Paul uses in his other letters for all the things that'll be wiped out because they're temporary. God's going to wipe out everything that's temporary, including these really great things. According to Paul, your spiritual gift has a shelf life. You will outlive your gift because it's only a partial experience of love. It'll no longer be necessary when completeness comes to use Paul's words. This is where all this is headed. (laughs) Let your imagination run wild. A world where the love of God is perfectly experienced and there is no unlove. And there is no, which means there is no injustice. Completeness. Paul wants us to reimagine our world and our personalities in light of God's incoming kingdom of love. What will that be like? And so, just to get your imagination going, get your juices flowing, this is where we need to stop and remind ourselves of how Jesus and the writers of the Bible think about the world and about time. Us modern folks, we think of world history as in a line moving from left to right. And we even think B, C, A, D, and we see it on a line. And the goal is to help ourselves move forward, be productive, be a people of industry and and progress and all of that. And that's great. Um, But where modern people think of a line, the ancients, they thought of scripture in terms of two spheres, two ages. This is how the writers of the Bible see the world. This is how Jesus saw the world. This is his worldview, which is important if you're a Jesus follower. Our goal is to have Jesus's worldview. Um, and, and so for Jesus, there's two ages, two spheres. There's the present age, he called it, which is evil in his words, which means it's full of injustice and broken relationships and oppressors abuse vulnerable, vulnerable people and creation is mistreated and people die. In the present age, and then there's the age to come, right? Which is where God's raw goodness is fully experienced, like in our bodies, everyone. And relationships are restored and oppressors are stopped and creation is healed and death is gone. And so those two spheres, that's Jesus worldview, right? So it's, it's gotta be ours in some way. And here's the important part we have to understand where we're at, where are we in the spheres? Jesus saw himself as the one who brought the age to come into the present. Jesus saw himself as inaugurating the kingdom. The kingdom is another way of saying the age to come. So he pointed to his own life and he said, the kingdom has come in me, in my body, in my teachings. Follow me because I am the way. And he's like, yes, the present evil age is still here for sure. People still Still kill and steal and destroy. Uh, absolutely. But, but this present evil age, in, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, it's fading away. It's declining. This is what Jesus believed. Therefore, it's what his followers believe. The present evil age is declining. And Jesus used all kinds of metaphors about the new age to come. The kingdom he's bringing is expanding And we're in the messy middle. We're in the overlap where we see tragedy and miracles, where we see death and resurrection, where we see the end of life and new birth. We see people die of a virus and we see people receive healing because we're in the messy middle. The kingdom is both now and not yet in this space where both ages overlap. So right now we have to point to an elephant in the room, an elephant on the promenade or whatever. For us, we're Westerners um, and we're urban and largely privileged in a city like San Diego. It might be hard to see how the kingdom is growing Maybe you're like, uh, Evan, I don't know if I'd say the kingdom's growing. I have lots of friends deconstructing their faith, and doubt is way more hip, and they're leaving the church. And isn't American church, isn't it in decline anyway? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. In the West, in the West, In, in, in our affluent, and let's face it, predominantly white urban areas, it may look like God's kingdom is losing ground, especially if that's the main culture you're seeing on your curated Instagram and Twitter feeds. But in the majority world, you guys, in Africa, Asia, South America, basically everywhere you can't find a $6 lavender latte, which is like 90% of the planet, Christianity is spreading like wildfire. There's a circle drawn by sociologists around the Southeast area of the continent of Asia, and it's only 5,000 miles across is this circle. And, and this little circle contains over half of the world's population, so it's this little circle, if you're looking at a world map, on the far right side of the map, and if you live outside that circle, you're in the minority. Which is crazy to think about, because within that circle, Christianity is exploding. In 2013, just to the west of that circle, the country sending the greatest percent, percentage of missionaries is guess what country? Palestine. 2019, the country where the church is growing the fastest, Iran, and that's still the case. Yes, Christianity is declining in Western cities, which is super niche, but the majority world is trending in the opposite direction. In the next 40 years, Christianity is set to remain the world's largest belief system, claiming 32% of the global population. That's 1% more than today. Islam also is expected to grow from 24% to 31%. Meanwhile, non-religious people, atheists, agnostics, and nuns, are trending to decline right now from 16 to 13 percent. And if China swings toward Christianity like the experts expect it will, the non-religious percentage could shrink even more. And then over one-third of everyone on the planet will be followers of Jesus. This is statistically the trend right now, possibly, and it will possibly be the biggest percentage in history. Put it in perspective— For every one privileged Western latte drinking Western millennial who deconstructs and leaves the church, for every one of those, there are five non-white poor majority world people literally flocking to Jesus as their only hope in the world. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Jesus and Paul are both right. The present evil age is declining. The age to come is breaking in. And we're in this messy middle and the question for us in the declining minority culture of the West, here's our question. What age are you living into? What age are you living into? Are you leaning toward the present age and the things that won't last, or the age to come that's breaking in through the spirit-empowered church that confesses Jesus as Lord over our bodies and will last forever? So as good Jesus followers, we're tempted to like, yeah, nod and stuff, you know? Like, yeah, I'm in, I'm all about the age to come, kingdom, but, but be careful. <laughs> because Paul, Paul here, he's intentionally trying to ruffle the feathers of people who think they're spiritual. These Corinthians were spiritual, prophetic. Like their problem was speaking in tongues too much and talking about the kingdom too much. And they have spiritual knowledge and they love teaching. And Paul's like, be careful. Don't let God's temporary benefits take the place of God. Don't start loving what you're doing for God more than loving God himself. It's easy to sit back and critique doubters and skeptics and be like, I'm not like that. I'm serving, I'm in, I'm fully, I'm all about the kingdom. But are you really about the kingdom? In other words, are you really a person of love? Spiritual things are great. They help us on the way to love. But love, is it your core motivation to live a settled purpose, to act for the well-being of those in your circle, no matter what they're, how they're responding to you or what it costs? The true colors that are exposed by those who are closest to you, they would know the answer to that best. And so Paul makes this point with two metaphors as we come, we're gonna to come to the table in a minute. <laughs> and he talks about immature kids and foggy mirrors of all things. These are Paul's metaphors. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only as a reflection in a mirror and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And Paul's brilliant here, you guys. He knows these images are like visceral to us. They give us feelings in our gut. Picture a five-year-old. I have a five-year-old kid and I don't know what's going on in his head ever until it comes out. I don't even know if that's what was in his head. Um, My five-year-old, he heard his cousins fighting recently. He was like playing video games and his cousins are fighting in the other room. And he's like, are they fighting? I love fighting. I fight a lot. And he just went back to what he was doing. He just he just brain farted that, it was great. That's cool for a five-year-old, right? Um, that wouldn't look so great on a 25-year-old. And that's the perspective shift Paul wants you to shoot for, us to shoot for this. The thinking and communication strategies of a five-year-old need to stay with five-year-old land. And and they need to be put away compared to the kinds of communication adults can do. Like five-year-olds literally think Skittles are the peak of human existence. We know better. Think about all the different kinds of relationships and the ways we interact with one another and, and the ki- careers and vocations and making plans for the future. and 5 year Yeah, that's not a five-year-old thing. And this is the disparity. Right now, all of our church stuff is five. (laughs) We're all five. This is all kindergarten, you guys. All of it compared to the way we will interact with love and the way we'll interact with God and the way we'll see each other in our proximity to God. We'll all be there intimately, you guys. It's five-year-old land compared to adulthood right now. All of this, this promenade, the gifts you have, the the plans you have for the church, the ways, it's all kindergarten. (laughs) All of it. Compared to the way it will work. Compared to completeness. Paul wants you to feel that. And the second metaphor is a foggy mirror. In those days, they didn't have perfect, like, awesome mirrors made out of pieces of glass or whatever they are now. Uh, they just had polished metal, like polished iron. And you couldn't quite make out your facial features just right. And Paul's like, isn't it better to look face to face? And we can get the same feeling if we think about Zoom. <laughs> like think of a choppy Zoom call for 10 months straight. And then you're sitting down to coffee with the person. You're like, your, your soul is inhaling oxygen from the person's face. Like, I can't believe how good this is. This is the difference. We are all on a Zoom call right now, and it's choppy, and there's lag. It's like, well, I missed that word. This is how all Christianity is working. This is how we interact with the divine, and we're all moving toward a day when we are face-to-face with love incarnate, Paul's driving home the difference between the now and the not yet. We're right in this messy middle. Now we see in a mirror, then we'll see face to face. Now we see partially, then we shall know fully, even as we're fully known. All of our half fulfilled longings and desires will be completely fulfilled. So a couple questions we're gonna ask ourselves as we come to the table now. We just read, now we see in a mirror dimly, right? This is all a dim mirror. Fully participating in the life of the church, it's just a dim mirror. But let me ask you, are you even looking in that mirror? Yeah, it's dim and it can be frustrating. It can feel unfulfilling and lonely even at times to be in the church. And we need to continue looking into the mirror. Are you looking in the mirror? Are you actively seeking to know God with whatever you have? Are you living in the spirit? Are you eagerly desiring to prophesy and to speak God's words for someone else or, or speak in tongues or whatever? Next week, we're gonna do a, another two-part series starting next week on prophecy in tongues. It's chapter 14. Are you chasing after these things, like looking into it with all of your heart? God has made himself known. He's knowable, you guys. The mysterious creator Of space-time has made himself known to human brains. Are you looking into the mirror? He's bringing the age to come into the present. Are you stepping into that? And finally, verse 13, last verse. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. Why is love the greatest? Faith and hope are pretty great. I heard faith recently defined very poorly. (laughs) I was listening to some podcast. I'm like, that is not faith. They were like, not even Christians. And they were trying to define Christian faith. Um, I'm like, no, actually, faith is not just mentally agreeing with doctrines. If that's all you think faith is, no wonder it's not uh, desirable. It's not mentally agreeing with doctrines, although that can be a good thing in the mix. Faith is so much more. A spouse has faith in their partner because of trustworthy character. In the same way, we trust God because he has a track record of faithfulness. That's trust. Faith is trust, relational trust, not mental assent to a belief statement. That comes later. But trust is the actual substance of faith. And guess what? One day, we won't need to rely on God's track record (laughs) because he'll be with us. We don't need to rely on God's history with Israel and through Jesus and the scriptures and all the story because he'll be fully present to us. Faith will be expired, you guys. Faith will be expired. I love how my friend Josh White wrote it in his song, faith will be replaced with loving you face to face. And this whole thing is going to change. The whole way we view humanity will change. And hope will change. Faith and hope, great things. What's hope? Like faith looks to the past, hope looks to the future. Richard Hayes defines hope. uh, Hope focuses our fervent desire to see a broken world restored by God to its rightful wholeness. This is that craving for justice. This is reimagining a world where abuse and racism are erased and vulnerable people are lifted up and death is history. This is hope. But then hope doesn't stop there hope then drives us to see glimpses of that future in the present. Hope is nothing until you get up and do something. And through our spirit-empowered work, hope is coming from God's future into our <laughs> presence. And one day, all there will be is God's future. And hope will be expired. Which is the best news of all. Because on that day, love will be complete completely here and, and no hypocrisy. That's my favorite part of that love will be here is that hypocrisy will be gone. I hate how I point at injustice out there and there's three pointing at just how I treated my wife and me. This is the human conundrum and that will be over problems solved with the arrival of Messiah. This is why we're eating and drinking the bread and cup. He's like the day I drink with you next will be new in my kingdom So live in hope, live in faith because love will last, love will last. So we're going to spend a song in the presence of God and one another, asking the spirit to illuminate areas where we have not allowed love to rule. Instead, we've loved the side benefits that God gives, which are great. Maybe because they've given us status which has caused us to act out in unlove towards those in our immediate circle. How are you placing the benefits of being God's child above God himself? And and another way of asking that question, are you living from the foundation of love? Because only love lasts. Are you living with a settled purpose to act for the well-being of others, no matter what they're responding like? or what it's costing you. Let's invite the spirit to come now. Heavenly Father, would you send your breath, your wind, your love, your spirit, to fill us and and animate us to first see the areas where we're not aligned with your love and then confess that sin. It's hypocrisy because we want love. We want to be loved. And we want other people to receive love. And yet we're unloving. Forgive us of our sins. Thank you that you provide a way to be changed and to be transformed into the image of Jesus who loved perfectly. Thank you that your kingdom is here now. Your kingdom of love is crashing into the present now. Thank you, God, that you inaugurated a movement that will never stop. And yet Lord, in the day to day, it's hard. Help, help us. So let's just spend this song celebrating our God who came to us in perfect love And just ask him to expose how we have not carried his name, carried his love forward in the world and and immediately realize he gives you forgiveness and power to step into his age to come today and to be those people of love.